Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. When I think of jazz, words like creativity, improvisation, and technical mastery come to mind. But I don't think of the history of racism, corruption, and the inherent danger surrounding the music. The history of the art form reflects the exploitation and economic practices of our broader society. Today, let's discuss jazz, justice, and the political economy of the music. Well, uh, warm greetings, everybody. Uh, we're here with Dr. Uh, Gerald Horn talking about his, not his most recent book, but a recent book, uh, Jazz and Justice. Uh, and for those who don't know uh, Dr. Horn, he's a very prolific uh, author, historian of um, history of American studies at the University of Houston. Uh, I, I, I quit counting at 30, 40 books. You're um, uh, I'm, I'm quite a big fan. I'm chipping, uh, chipping away at your books uh, one at a time. In fact, you're, before we get to Jazz and Justice. Oh, great. I am a third of the way through this. Greg isn't, oh, Greg great. isn't when I'm finished with this, I'll send it on to Greg. This is so um, current. It's the counter-revolution of 1836, Texas, slavery, Jim Crow, and the roots of U.S. fascism, and uh, tell, tell me a little bit about that book before we get into your jazz and justice. Well, as you know, right now I'm uh, living in Southeast Texas, and ever since I've been here, which has been a few decades now, uh, the history of this land has fascinated me, not least because I had already known that Texas had been the headquarters of a number of fearsome Native American groupings led by the Comanches. And I oftentimes wondered what had happened to them. And that was my entry point into this present book. And as the subtitle suggests, I live in the United States in the wake of January 6, 2021, the apparent comeback of Agent Orange in 2024, uh, if he's not jailed first, it has intrigued me and interested me in terms of exploring, as the subtitle suggests, the roots of U.S. fascism. And, and you're kind of picking up uh, from what Molly Ivins did with comedy. You're picking, you're taking the torch from her and carrying it, uh, exposing the rather crazy uh, governance in that uh, <laughs> in that state and how it's a petri dish for what goes forth to the rest of our country. It's, 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 it's kind of sad, but funny at the same time. So anyway, that, that's yeah. just, that's a wonderful book, but we're here to talk about jazz and justice. Uh, Greg and I just love this book. Anytime we have a book that we end up talking back and forth about, we know it was, uh, it hit a nerve and this one certainly did. It's the, uh, um, Racism and the Political Economy of the Music. And this may be a little bit over the top, but Cornell West says that you are one of the greatest historians of our time. I, I don't know what you had to do to get Cornell to say that, but I'm not so sure I disagree with you. Your, your production and your, 
scholarship. You're, you richly research everything that you do. And um, how many how many Gerald Horns are there? There must be two <laughs> or three to put these books out. It, it's yeah. it's um, it's remarkable. Well, well I, this is Dr. I, Cornell. It's amazing what passing one of you greenbacks will do. <laughs> <laughs> he's one of my. Hey, he's he's a he's an absolute national treasure. Also, so. I, I, this book was published a couple of years ago. I'm, I am, am I assuming you started to do your research during the middle of the pandemic or how did that, how did it coincide with COVID? Well, actually, like some of my projects, I think that this research began actually when I was a young boy in St. Louis, Missouri. That is to say, uh, I grew up in a household where music was ubiquitous for whatever reason, my late father always had a guitar around, which my younger brother Marvin Horn eventually picked up. And as you suggested, he's now a well-known musician. We oftentimes had a, a piano in the house as well. And then on the block in which I grew up in St. Louis, up the street uh, was the family of the late uh, trumpeter Lester Bowie of the mm. Art Ensemble of Chicago. Yeah. Uh, his father was a music teacher at a local black high school. Uh, Lester's younger brother, uh, Joseph Bowie, a trombonist, had been playing in bands with my younger brother, uh, Marvin, ever since they were about 10 or 11. So I, I think it's fair to say that the roots of this particular project were planted uh, early on. And then as noted uh, in the text, uh, St. Louis has contributed more than its share with regard to notable musicians. We claim Miles Dewey Davis, even though he's from across the river <laughs> in, in uh, Alton. Uh, Clark Terry, uh, for example, I mentioned Lester Bowie, uh, Marvin Horn. And so um, I think growing up in that atmosphere uh, helped to prepare me to tackle this project. And, and, and Bowie's are the, the Marcelluses of, uh, of St. Louis in a way, just a family that's rich in, in the jazz scene there. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know how to, I wanna start this book by just having a general comment about, I, 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 love, my, I love my iPhone, it's wonderful. I, it brings great joy to my life, just like jazz does. But I don't want to think too hard about how the iPhone is made, about the, about the 12-year-old the, the kids that are working on this 60 hours a week or the horrible exploitation of the precious metals used uh, uh, to make the iPhone. In a way, I think that's what your book does uh, with jazz. This is just a, a extraordinary, powerful, wonderful part of so many people's lives. Uh, it's complex. It's rich. Uh, it's intellectual. It's um, and yet it has a pretty ugly uh, underbelly in our country uh, of exploitation and um, and that that's the kind of the two themes of your book as I see it. The one is this this how did this how did this art form come to us? Uh, the second part of it is there were problems when. There are problems with this art form and, and how these jazz musicians were treated and maybe still are treated. I don't know, is that, do you think that's an accurate uh, overview of? Well, certainly. Um, 
obviously there have been uh, some improvements uh, over the decades, but at root, uh, the music still reflects the socioeconomic context of being a capitalist exploitation. And just like capitalist exploitation over the decades, the pace and the nature of exploitation has eroded to a certain extent because people struggle, for example, they organize, they fight back, but we have not achieved total victory uh, as of yet, <laughs> to put it mildly. And I think, as I recall in the introduction uh, to this book, I suggest that the music is equivalent to the lotus that grows in the mud. Mm -hmm. And the mud being the nature of capitalist exploitation and the lotus being uh, the beauty and the creativity and the originality uh, of the music itself. Now, with regard to this music, uh, there is contestation, as I tried to indicate early on, with regard to the origins of this music. The consensus has been that it originates in New Orleans and that in part it stems from the point that with regard to the US Civil War, 1861 to 1865, the Lincoln forces seized this major Dixie port early on. And then, as you probably know, the military specializes in having bands and orchestras. As a matter of fact, uh, this may be in the book, but uh, the Pentagon probably spends more on bands. You know, it spends, you know, if you have a trillion dollars to play with, you can spend a lot on a lot of things. And it probably spends more on bands than any other entity. And so as the troops withdraw, and unfortunately they withdraw, which then leads to a comeback uh, by the reactionaries and the former slave owners, because New Orleans has a bloody history. But as they leave their instruments, then they're oftentimes picked up by the newly emancipated. That's one factor. Another factor, of course, is that New Orleans, uh, before the Civil War, has a very rich uh, musical history. Uh, opera, for example, opera companies, uh, for example. And so when you mix all of these factors together, you begin to see why New Orleans which also has Congo Square, which is a place where the enslaved in downtown New Orleans used to go, particularly for uh, percu percussion. And then that's not even to get into the question of the pre-existing mu musical legacy uh, brought to North America uh, by Africans. Uh, for example, uh, the leading prison in, in Louisiana to this very day is Angola State Prison named after the Southwest African nation, which supplied uh, all too many in, enslaved Africans. So th there's a lot to be said with regard to this New Orleans story. But as I've suggested, uh, it, in, in New Orleans, the patriots oftentimes get upset when I question uh, their ownership of, of the origins of this music. But I think part of it has to do with the fact also that uh, Tulane University, a major university in New Orleans, uh, early on began to capture oral histories by uh, New Orleans musicians. 
some of these musicians are born uh, as early as the late 1860s. And I think that that tends to overdetermine what the historians say, because if you look at the history of Memphis, another uh, Mississippi River port town, if you look at the richness of the musicians that have come out of uh, Memphis, let's start perhaps begin with the saxophonist Charles Lloyd, who fortunately is still in the land of the living, uh, you could make a case, a similar case with regard to Memphis, with regard to some of these factors. And of course, it's, it's not as if the Lincoln army took over Memphis as early as 1862, but still. And I think one of the differences is that these archivists in Tulane did not have an equivalent in Memphis, at the University of Memphis, for example. And you could make a similar case with regard to my hometown, St. Louis, another Mississippi River town. And the archivists at St. Louis University and Washington University were not as energetic as the archivists in Tulane. And I could go on with regard to these uh, possible origin stories, but uh, let me apologize in advance to our friends from New Orleans who tend to get upset if they're a patrimonious question. Well, that, that was one of the things that I thought was interesting about your book that I learned. You know, I just thought everything happened from New Orleans. It started in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Then they, they break up Storyville, which is all of the mm -hmm. flop houses. Mm -hmm. And and uh, and so the musicians scattered and that's that created. But you you really do a good job of, of talking about it. it's New Orleans is Kansas City, St. Louis, New Jersey, Cuba. Uh, mm -hmm. Memphis, um, mm -hmm. and of course now New York, maybe uh, Pittsburgh. Um, mm -hmm. And as I was uh, reading your book, I was listening to music, <laughs> and I went through all of these cities and created playlists in in um, Spotify that I'll post if people are interested. Jazz is is rich across all of our country. It's not just the Mississippi River. It's places where the Mississippi didn't go, and it's um, maybe you could make a story one way or the other that 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 New Orleans gets maybe a little bit too much too much credit. Careful, careful. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. all right, all right. But, but, but you're both making a really, I think, great, great. Uh, uh, account of, of its origins and its roots, but what I think is unique to it is how it draws on all those influences in a way that uh, a few other musical forms do. I mean, it really, everywhere jazz appeared, it added something to it that was unique and was retained and, and shaped jazz and kept it alive and kept it uh, creative for so long. I mean, it didn't get stuck in the mud, and <laughs> not the mud no. that uh, Professor Horn was talking about, but it didn't get stuck in the mud. It grew and it evolved and it was always something uh, alive. But I think we don't want to lose track of the political economy that Professor Horn uh, has in his subtitle. And I think that's where the great tragedy comes from and that it's such a cherished art form in this country and yet it was exploited so, so dramatically and fully and completely from its inception. And yet it was so great. And, and you look at other countries that embraced it when we didn't, when we really didn't. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty, it really says something about what, what a contribution it was to the world of music uh, because it wasn't embraced there. And I think that's a lot of the story I draw from this book. I mean, really, it explains why it wasn't embraced here, why it was exploited, 
why it didn't become the classical music of America, why there weren't uh, uh, halls uh, dedicated, uh, fundraisers among the wealthy to, to support it as there was with classical music and so on. That's all that's in the book, I think, in the political economy that is developed here. Mm. What do you think, what, may I ask you this? I look back at the 50s because I'm a product of the 50s, I'm, I'm, I'm aged. But it seems to me that's when things turned bad. I mean, that's when jazz really got pushed aside. And uh, of course, rock and roll played a role in that. Mm. But, but even the universities, I mean, when you think about jazz, when I was growing up, if you were a college person, it was Dave Brubeck because he did the college mm -hmm. uh, and he was white. Mm -hmm. And if you were, uh, uh, let's say, a rebellious, it was the B generation. And they wrote extensively about jazz, but it was Jerry Mulligan, it was Stan Getz and Pacific, mm -hmm. you know, West Coast jazz, all white. So it was like, as though the African-American contribution in the 50s was suppressed. And I wonder if you think TV had something to do with that the fact that we had a national medium emerging and we had segregation at the same time. And so you didn't wanna have black faces and uh, uh, in, in, in a medium representing music. Any thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting. I mean, uh, there, there is something to what you say, but as I'm sure as some of our more alert listeners and viewers may know, uh, one of the reasons why we have figures like uh, Lester Young, the saxophonist, and Billie Holiday, the singer, uh, why we have well, film on film is because of television. The late uh, Nat Hentoff, uh, a former columnist for the Village Voice, amongst other publications, and of course who wrote <laughs> liner notes to countless jazz albums, he plays a, a role. But certainly there could have been more there certainly could have been many more of these musicians uh, on the boot tube uh, than there were. And then with regard to the 1950s, uh, there's something of a divergence. Uh, on the one hand, you see with the 1950s, as you know more than most, there is the Red Scare. And so you had these musicians, such as the trumpeter Dizzy Gillespie, for example, who were sympathetic to figures like the late great Paul Robeson. Uh, you may know that the major innovator Charles Yardbert Parker of Kansas City and New York, uh, he has been captured uh, on audio, uh, although it's not oftentimes mentioned when it's played on the air. For example, wkcr.org, which is one of my favorite uh, stations for the music. Yardbird is playing at a benefit for the communist leader of Ben Davis, right? who of course was elected to the New York City Council in 1943, re-elected in 1945, before being jailed <laughs> a few years later because of the Smith Act. And so what happens with regard to the 1950s is that on the one hand, with the organized left being routed, uh, this has detrimental knock-on effects concerning labor union organizing by the musicians, consciousness of the musicians. But at the same time, the United States is moving in a somewhat contrasting direction because at that moment, US imperialism is under ideological assault because African and Caribbean nations are coming to independence. 
US apartheid Jim Crow is seen as contradictory to this idea of the United States being a paragon of human rights virtue. And so that creates enormous pressure for the erosion of the most horrible aspects of Jim Crow. And then that to a certain degree opens up certain kinds of opportunities. For example, this is the time <laughs> the United States government begins to send many of these musicians abroad because supposedly a jazz represents freedom uh, as the, the saying went. And of course, this has uh, effects, ricochet effects in terms of the music. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, one of the most lovely tunes of uh, a late composer and pianist and band leader Duke Ellington was Isfahan, uh, which is also the name of a Persian Iranian city where Duke Ellington and his orchestra tour. And I should also say that even before the State Department tours of the 1950s, and recall as well that this put pressure on the musicians. Recall what happened in 1957 when Louis Armstrong is touring abroad, Louis Armstrong being one of the major innovators of the music, singer, trumpeter, composer, and he's being queried about the desegregation crisis at Little Rock High School in, in Arkansas. And he unleashes a tirade against the United States government that gets national, national and international publicity putting further pressure on the United States. And so there are these contradictory trends with regard to the music. And I should also say, even before the State Department, when I interrupted myself, even before the State Department was singing, sending these musicians abroad, as the comments of one of you, perhaps both of you, tended to suggest, um, the skill that these musicians had meant that they were employable overseas. And so there was a mighty jazz diaspora. Uh, Booker Pittman, the grandson of the late black leader, Booker T. Washington, uh, eventually went into permanent exile in Brazil. He was a clarinetist. Uh, my colleague, uh, Douglas Henry Daniels, who wrote this biography of Lester uh, Prez Young, is now working on a book about the jazz diaspora in the Asia Pacific region, uh, particularly in Japan, uh, where there are numerous uh, clubs uh, that focus on the music, jazz clubs, that is to say, uh, where there are numerous releases uh, of the music. And of course, uh, pre-1949, pre-Chinese uh, revolutionary Shanghai was also a lodestar uh, for the music uh, as well. And he's traveled there to do research, British India, uh, also uh, was a lodestar for the music. And even today, as we speak, there is this trend with regard to uh, Filipino musicians being popular throughout the Asian Pacific region. To a certain extent, uh, this is an outgrowth of the point that beginning with the so-called Spanish-American War of 1898, uh, you had the outflow of Black American soldiers uh, to the Philippines, uh, many of them musicians. And so now, if you go to a club in Dubai or in Hong Kong, uh, you're likely to find a Filipino cover band 
mm -hmm. that does not only jazz, but does all manner of, of music. And of course, they're very good. And I haven't even talked about Europe, uh, where the uh, late great saxophonist uh, Dexter Gordon uh, spent uh, many of his rest years. Miles Davis, the drummer Kenny Clark. I think he had roots in Pittsburgh, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, he did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, spent a, a good deal of time in, in France, for example. So uh, this, in, in a nutshell, it, it tends to uh, liberate these musicians because many of them can earn incomes that they might not have been able to earn in the United States, and then they can send the money back home, remittances as they're called now, which keeps their families afloat and allows their families more flexibility in terms of joining the struggle. So there's a, a kind of a virtuous circle that's created that has very positive impact on the struggle right here at home. Well, going back to Greg's question, you know, was it TV that helped or hurt? I, I think in your book, you talked about Leo, Leopold Tchaikovsky with Fantasia, who didn't think Ron Carter, the bass player, was a very good fit because he didn't want to have a black bass player on the... And you also mentioned the Merv Griffin show back in the 70s when a group of uh, musicians kind of stormed the stage because at this it's, time, all, so the, all the house bands on these TV shows were white musicians and these were good gigs you know they didn't have quest love or baptiste or whatever you know i i, I, so there I was, was uh, i was I, I was lucky to I, I saw the television show when uh uh rasan Kirk kirk and i mm -hmm. think it was archie shep interrupted ed sullivan and uh and consequently they they disrupted it they actually disrupted it it consequently got a performance on that tv show but they were underlining the fact that you really didn't see black musicians playing jazz on television. Yeah, there was uh, Ralph Gleason and there was that Playboy thing too. Uh, Hugh Hefner had a show where he featured some jazz musicians, but the big shows, you never saw any black jazz musicians and they were underscoring that fact. Uh, it was pretty dramatic. It was fun to just happen happenstance that I actually saw it live. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Archie Shepp who fortunately is still in the land of the living and is one of the, the giants of the music. And certainly one of the more politicized uh, of the musicians. And uh, I heartily recommend uh, his album, Attica Blues, which oh, yeah. obviously uh, marks the prison revolt that takes place in upstate New York about a half century ago, which has ricocheting effects all, all over the United States with regard to prisoners' uh, uprisings including in Northern California, uh, which leads unfortunately to the killing of George Jackson, one of the leading uh, black prisoner uh, intellectuals. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, Rasan Roland Kirk as well, <laughs> not only because of his creativity, being able to play all these instruments at once, you know, it's sort of like a one man band, but uh, it gives us an opportunity to uh, salute the um, what might be called the differently able musicians, but used to be called disabled musicians because his vision was not uh, very keen. And as sometimes it's suggested, I don't know if it's accurate, that that, that can lead to more acuity with regard to uh, other senses such as hearing. 
And uh, there's been a, a, a long history of uh, musicians whose sight is impaired. Um, let's talk about Stevie Wonder, for example. Ray Charles. Uh, Ray Charles, for example. I mean, the list is long. Uh, who have been who have made enormous uh, contributions uh, to U.S. popular music, at least. Yeah, Let, let's get back to how um, these musicians were exploited and screwed. And uh, I want to talk about Irving Mills. Here is his, <laughs> here is Irving Mills's uh, uh, tombstone. He was from 1894 to eight, to 1985. Beloved husband, father, and great-grandfather, Irving Mills, humanitarian. <laughs> so, so I went on to, I went on to Discog and looked at, uh, you know, you can see all of the musicians and everybody, and he has one album to his credit. He has 7,605 credits, though, on <laughs> Discog. So that brings us to... The album I just picked up a couple of days ago. This is Duke Ellington. And when we look here at the album, Minnie the Moocher, Cab Calloway, and Irving Mills. Hmm. <laughs> I'm getting sentimental over you. Neil Waters, Washington, and Mills Music. And then, you know, the, with he, he's, he finds himself written into the music credits for a huge number of... Um, these musicians. So the question to you, is he really a beloved husband, father, and humanitarian, or is he something else? Could, snake. Uh, could, yeah, could they just put snake, snake maybe? Or so, well, I, I don't know. T tell me uh, tell me about that. Uh, tell me what, what some of your research was regarding that lease subject. Well, I understand why his family is sentimental about his passing, because of his ability to appear zealot-like on liner notes and tunes, 7,000 strong, as you suggested. <laughs> what that means is that there are still a, there's still a steady stream of royalties going to his descendants, as opposed to going to the descendants of Duke Ellington, for example. To or, this day. To this very day, or or to the descendants of uh, Billy Strayhorn, for example, Duke Ellington's right-hand man. From Pittsburgh. Uh, sorry? From oh, that's Pittsburgh. Right, Pittsburgh. Exactly. You, exactly. You'll find those when I when I post the uh, Spotify, you'll be able to keep track of who's where, but I have him <laughs> in Pittsburgh, yeah, my, my, my notes. Go ahead. So, so th this is an essential part of the exploitation, but th this allows me to raise another point, uh, which I think is of significance which is the role of organized crime which, with regard to music, where it has an early influence in New Orleans, for example, in terms of Storyville, the so-called red light district of, of New Orleans, and it has an early influence in Kansas City. Now, I tend to follow this path where a chapter on New Orleans followed by a chapter on Kansas City. Now, you don't have to be an, a, ge a geography expert to realize that Kansas City is not on the Mississippi River. And so uh, that, that tends to disrupt this idea about uh, 
the music starting in New Orleans and with Storyville being disrupted, the music musicians all head north. Uh, of course, many of these musicians are from New Jersey. They're from all over the country. And then of course, many of them from Kansas City uh, as well, uh, such as um, Charlie Yardbird Parker, aforementioned. And so what's interesting about Kansas City is the influence of organized crime in the, in the clubs, uh, so notorious that it's depicted in Hollywood cinema. There's the uh, movie, I think it's called Kansas City, that deals with the music yes. and uh, notoriously depicts the influence of organized crime, which in turn is connected to the political machine in Kansas City, which helps to give rise to the man who becomes US president, Harry S. Truman, between 1945 and 1952, coming directly out of that uh, seamy uh, background. And I, I tell the story about St. Louis as well, that I find intriguing. And those who are interested can look at the footnote that I, I retrieved it from a dissertation because I think it's a, it's a fascinating story. So what happens in St. Louis is that on the one hand, you have Klan elements, Ku Klux Klan elements, who want to bar black musicians altogether from clubs. And then you have organized crime figures who do not want to do that. They just want to exploit them shamelessly. And so there's a showdown <laughs> between the Klan and the organized crime figures, and of course the latter emerged triumphant. And so the black musicians win the dubious right, quote unquote, to be exploited shamelessly as opposed to being excluded. And I also talk about that influence with regard to Chicago and how the late great pianist, Earl Father Hines uh, talks about some of the riffs that he's improvising on some of his uh, signal tunes uh, comes from the sound of gunfire, for example. Hmm. Ta -da -ta 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 -ta. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, the bebop too was, you know, sound. They right. Partially... I, I think it was Dizzy Gillespie who said also part of the bebop sound comes from the sound of batons on Negro's heads. heads. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good, a true story, but it's a good story. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, organized crime, I, I think uh, progressive forces in the United States need to pay more attention to it as a material force uh, because you, you, you can see the presence on these shores of my ancestors, for example, by dint of the uh, unlimited African slave trade as, as being sort of an early form of organized crime. Uh, that is to say, uh, kidnapping labor, forcing labor to work for free. And then after the uh, African slave trade is, is illegalized in the United States uh, circa 1808, it continues, which is a form of crime. And um, so, so organized crime, I, I think as, as we try to have an understanding of this vast land in, in which we live so that we can seek to transform it, um, it would help to have a deeper understanding of this material force that has had such a noxious impact upon labor relations in particular. Yeah, yeah, and you mentioned that with labor. In, in 1943, only New York and Detroit were the only two 
cities that allowed that had allowed blacks into the union, musicians union. And then when they decided to integrate them, they got screwed. You know, right. <laughs> it was like, OK, now we'll let you in. Now, now you're screwed. It's like Brown versus Board of Education. Now that we have our schools integrated, all these uh, black uh, ac academics and teachers were just lost their jobs. <laughs> right. Right. So. Yeah. And, and it would have been helpful if, of course, the left was on the defensive, uh, to be fair, yeah. in the 1950s when all of these titanic trends were unfolding. I think that helps to explain uh, some of the deficits in terms of understanding what's happening. I mean, it's difficult to keep a bead on what's happening in your country if you're underground or, or if you're <laughs> fleeing overseas, if you're in prison, uh, et cetera. But certainly with regard to the latter trend, and I, I noticed that uh, you gentlemen have a particular fondness for Pittsburgh. And some of my major insights with regard to the musicians unions comes from the papers of musicians locals at the University of, uh, of Pittsburgh. Um, because as you suggest, what happens is that beginning in the 1950s, you have so-called desegregation uh, of the musicians locals. On the, that is to say, at one time you would have a, a Negro local and then you'd have a non-Negro local. One, one of the interesting things about the United States Jim Crow is that oftentimes that term non-Negro is, is a posit, it's appropriate uh, because they're mostly white, but others who are not Negro could enter as well. And I think that that stems from something else the left needs to focus on in this country, which is a particular oppression of black people, which is not only based on slavery, I mean, not only based on racism, but is based upon the aspects of slavery, that is to say, being property that's expropriated without compensation, which leads to fury and leads to a, a thirst for revenge, uh, which distinguishes the black population from other quote minorities, unquote. So what happens in Pittsburgh and indeed throughout a good deal of the United States is that desegrega desegregation basically means liquidation of the Negro local. Oftentimes they toss out their records, for example, Oftentimes the emerging desegregated local, the Euro-American musicians, they have special relationships with the club owners. So they cut deals with the club owners to exclude the uh, black musicians. And so obviously <laughs> this sours many of these black musicians and their families uh, on the alleged benefits of, of, of desegregation. So it, it, it's, it's, you know, the Chinese talk about win-win. Well, uh, this was not a win-win situation, to put it mildly. In your book, you, you, uh, you, you generously acknowledge um, white musicians who participated mm -hmm. in, 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 the, in the development of the music and the, the ongoing uh, pursuit of the music. But, but that's not always the case. And you, you indicate that... Uh, many people were appropriating the music, not just participating. I mean, people like uh, my, from my, my, my own experience, Charlie Hayden, for example, was most appreciative of the music and always understood the roots of it and brought something to it and did it respectfully. But other musicians were appropriating it and they were appropriating it without any gratitude or an acknowledgement. Can you speak to that? Well, certainly, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Charlie Hayden. 
um, the uh, basis, also highly politicized, just yes. to put it mildly. I, as I recall in that book, I, told, uh, I recount a vignette of Charlie Hayden and his band playing in uh, Portugal before the overthrow of fascism. And as I recall, the, he, he, he plays his remarkable tune, Song for Che, which is, of course, referring to the uh, Cuban-Argentine revolutionary Che Guevara, and then barely uh, escaping imprisonment. And then, of course, there's Dave Brubeck, uh, who I think you mentioned uh, was seen in some quarters as being a leader uh, of the music on the cover of Time magazine, which at that time, in the 1950s, meant something. He also left a remarkable archive, which I drew upon at the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California, which allowed me to tell many tales about how Dave Brubeck in the 1950s, uh, he refused, a la Paul Robeson, to play in segregated venues. Mm -hmm. uh, that is to say, historically in the United States, either A, there was exclusion of the black component of the audience, or B, there would be a rope down the middle of the concert hall when you put black people on one side and non-black people on the other side. Uh, Dave Brubeck re refused to uh, participate in that. But as you suggest, <laughs> there were a number of musicians who decided to go with the flow, <laughs> not to protest. And uh, there's one musician from, from New Orleans, that, that his name escapes me who even tries to uh, denigrate the idea that the music has roots in Africa. Because of course, this is in the 1930s when the reputation of colonized Africa is not at its zenith, to put it mildly, at the United States. And it was seen as being a defect or liability to suggest that this musical form uh, had roots uh, in Africa. But I should also say, because I, I want to give your audience uh, a, a fuller picture, that uh, struggle uh, against these various, various forms of oppression uh, was unrelenting uh, over the decades. And I think that to the extent that we've made progress, it comes from the existence of that real and salient fact. I mean, for example, one of you mentioned uh, how in many US cities, uh, you have orchestras that are paid uh, by the state or by the city. Right. And now, of course, you, you have um, the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra in New York City under the leadership of uh, Wynton Marsalis. You have the SF Jazz in San Francisco which has a, a lovely hall, which engages in music education throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. And it's, it's important to recognize that these are victories, but these are victories that came from blood, sweat, and tears. These are victories that came from a relentless struggle. And I think that that's one of the lessons of this book that we should carry away. Greg, what what were you talking about with the blind uh, the blind? Oh, R. Uh, R. Davis. R. R. Davis was an extraordinary bass player. Uh, just, uh -huh. mm -hmm. I mean, that's my own personal opinion. Uh, when he his performances with Coltrane, which are underappreciated, he's on a few of a few of his albums, early albums, it was just stunning. 
but he was that great of a, of a bass player, and but he was he was turned down in an audition for a uh, concert gig, and I think it was the New York uh, Philharmonic. And uh, after a long period of struggle, they were forced to submit auditions behind screens because they were denying mm -hmm. access to black musicians because they were black. And so that did change. And again, as, as uh, Professor Horn says, that's a product of a long struggle, very long struggle to get that kind of justice. I should also mention that that opens the door, the screen practice, to opening uh, uh, more opportunities for women musicians. Mm. And uh, there's a lengthy and glorious history, and glorious history of the exploitation of women musicians, uh, including by certain critics. Critics, of course, play a role in the music and in my book as well, uh, who rail at the idea of women bassists, for example, uh, who rail at the idea of women horn players, supposedly because of their dearth of lung capacity, uh, for example. Uh, women being exploited by fellow musicians, for example. As you know, uh, with regard to many of these gigs, these jobs, it, it's done on a sort of an ad hoc basis, like recruiting for a pickup basketball game. And so when a woman musician then calls the home of some male musician with regard to getting the gig, this can create issues for the male musician sometimes, and not to mention the sexual harassment and crude exploitation uh, of many of the uh, women musicians uh, as well. And this, I, I would say, is one of the areas where there's still a need for progress of course, there is a need for progress in about every area of the music, but certainly uh, this is an area where there's much more work that needs to be done. And you mentioned Art Davis, and I think one of you also mentioned uh, Ron Carter. And of course, uh, Ron Carter, he's in his 80s now and is still in the land of the living and has appeared on uh, countless albums, too numerous to mention. And like many musicians, including my younger brother, Marvin, uh, were able to make, do quite well playing in Japan. Uh, mm -hmm. Playing in Japan, say for a few weeks, could carry you for months, if not longer, uh, after you come back to the States. You know, the one thing I got from your book that I didn't think about prior to reading is, is how dangerous it was to be a jazz musician. You had these club owners that exploited you, uh, wouldn't pay you. Uh, people had to pack pack guns because it was so, so dangerous. Uh, and I, I think you could make a good argument. I'm, I'm not so sure it's one of the most dangerous careers. You know, I mean, of course, Greg's family is all coal miners. He might argue with me, but, uh, you know, it, it, it was it was hard to, it was hard to do it was hard to travel uh it was hard to find accommodations in the in in you know in the, in the south um and all along the way people were out to exploit to uh, exploit you i don't know 
don't forget the police. Don't forget the police. They were not friendly either to jazz musicians. And, uh, mm. and cabaret license in New York, that was another way of uh, destroying a career of a, of a jazz musician. Mm. You know, there, there's a, a famous picture of Miles Davis being bloodied by the New York City police officer. And that scene is replicated in the movie with Don Cheadle, the actor of playing Miles. Um, and with regard to the health question, then there's the issue of before the current period, musicians playing in smoky clubs, which is sort of romanticized, but obviously that secondhand smoke huh. is a deleterious impact uh, on the health of these musicians. And then there's a, a, a basic contradiction that I should sketch, which is that it's oftentimes suggested I'm not sure if it's true, but I'll repeat it, that to be a chess grandmaster, you have to be weak and everything else. Well, certainly musicians, sometimes these musicians would practice 16 hours a day. And as a matter of fact, Grandpa Marsalis says this is one of the reasons for the uh, early exit from life of John Coltrane, that he sort of uh, blew out his system by practicing so much. But if you're practicing 16 hours a day, well then how can you keep up with the nuts and bolts of your contracts with record companies with regard to being paid and if you're being compensated uh, adequately? So there, there are many uh, contradictions uh, of, of being a modern not to mention a non-modern musician, just by virtue of trying to be expert with your instrument and considering some of the unavoidable downstream consequences of singing. And frankly, there were they were better musicians than a lot I mean, a lot of the white musicians. I mean, Bill Evans is one of my favorite pianists, and I you know I like. Uh, a lot of white jazz musicians, but they were doing things that other musicians at the time could not do. They couldn't play bebop as well. They couldn't play some of the music because not only were they, uh, you know, they worked harder. I don't know. Maybe that's a racist thing to say, but I, I think it's statistically correct that the preponderance of jazz coming out of our country the, the best of the best were the, the black musicians. Well, certainly the innovators, uh, be it Coltrane, Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, Jimmy Charles Henry. Mingus, we haven't mentioned uh, as of yet. And with regard to bebop, one of the stories that I, I represent in, in these pages is that there are many elements that lead to the creation of this music form, which is still with us uh, in, in the 1940s. One having to do with New York City uh, cracking down on clubs where there's dancing because there's interracial dancing, that is to say interracial heterosexual dancing with uh, black men and non-black women, for example, and that was seen as a faux pas. But also th there's evidence to suggest that many of these musicians were trying to, they were consciously trying to complexify the music, which would make it difficult to imitate. <laughs> make it difficult yeah. to be ripped off 
or, or, mm -hmm. or replicated, mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. example. And um, I should also mention as well that you know I, I published in a number of fields, but th this field of jazz studies, um, it's a very sensitive field to publish in because on the one hand, as you suggest, many of the creators and innovators are black, but most of the critics are not. Most right. of the analysts are not. And this, despite what some of the critics and analysts might say, uh, I think that that can create problems because the United States, you know, it doesn't have a very strong left-wing movement. I'm, I'm sorry to break that to people, but <laughs> you know, we wouldn't be talking about being on the talking about a comeback of Agent Orange if we had a strong left-wing movement. And I think that that impacts the consciousness across the board. And it leads to certain kinds of insensitivity that then uh, comes across with regard to those who write about this music, uh, those who write about the musicians. And as I said, it also has impact with regard to gender as well, uh, because most of the critics are, are not women, to put it mildly. And I think that that feeds and fuels a certain kind of gender insensitivity as well. Right. The, the, right. the critical field was dominated when I was a youngster with, by Downbeat Magazine. Mm -hmm. And their writers were almost, I think they were early on when, when I started buying it all white. And uh, they were pretty much obstacles to the development of the music all along. And they're particularly hostile to black innovators. I remember when I, I started subscribing to Downbeat and I got the issue, I guess, early 60s, uh, Abby Lincoln and, and Max Roach had a very controversial uh, album, which was about racism and about civil rights movement. And, and the furor among the white critics to that album, the hostility was just unbelievable. I was a youngster. I didn't have a great understanding of things, but I could see and sense that hostility. And then uh, years later, a few years later, with Coltrane's uh, development and involvement and, and essentially stardom leading the charge here, Ira, Geidler, Ira Gettler and a few other writers, he called it anti-jazz. And, and uh, they're just a, a huge attack about something they didn't understand. And I well, think that's, that's been a really a problem in the music because uh, they, Downbeat was the magazine. It was mm -hmm. the magazine for critical uh, analysis. Uh, Rolling Stone has a big thing now of uh, Cool and the Gang, kind of revisiting them, and they have a lot of their YouTube videos. God, they, gosh, they were, good. gosh, they were good and innovative. Uh, mm -hmm. But at the time, it was, it's like you said, at the time they were just sort of you know, pop, pop stuff, and uh, they, they didn't get their due um, for being so innovative as they were. So. Anyway. Mm. Yeah, and I'm glad we keep mentioning John Coltrane, obviously one of the creators and innovators of the music who dies prematurely. But as you suggest, when he tried to go in certain directions musically, many of the critics were not willing to go along with him. I mean, sheets of sound, you know. Exactly. And then, of course, we should also credit. Uh, some of his tunes, such as Alabama, that played, pay homage to the September 1963 bombing of the church in Birmingham, uh, which leads to the killing of these little black girls. And of course, 
has dynamic impact on a young Angela Davis who's growing up in Alabama and who knew uh, many of these uh, young black girls who were killed. And so this music uh, is a prism uh, through which we can seek to understand and hopefully gain a better comprehension uh, of this country in which we live so that we can be more effective fighters in struggling against uh, oppression and making a better world altogether. Speaking of strong political activists, tell me some of your thoughts about Mingus. <laughs> oh yeah, he's one of my favorites. Uh, he's a rascal, wasn't he? He, he was a <laughs> rascal and I, I love him. He, he just yeah. to the end, he just never, never changed. Always such a strong force. Strong man. You know, you know, he's born in the borderlands, uh, Nogales, uh, Arizona, uh, not far distant from Mexico. Uh -huh, and of uh -huh. course, dies in Mexico as well. And there, there's a documentary about his later years. It's probably on YouTube, uh, where, where there is a remarkable scene, which is quite illustrative, of Mingus being evicted from his New York City residence. I mean, here you have one of the greatest and most creative musicians of all time uh, in the process of having all of his art and all of his belongings being placed on the streets oh, Jesus. Uh, of Manhattan. Uh, it's remarkable. So, and then, of course, uh, he, he left us with his memoir, uh, Beneath the Underdog, which some of your audience might find difficult to get through. But if you do get through it, I think you'll be rewarded. And certainly he's been the subject of a number of biographies as well. And need I mention uh, one of my, my favorite tunes of all time, uh, which is Haitian Fight Song, uh -huh, uh -huh. which I try to play it at every opportunity. And like uh, Louis Armstrong, who railed against Governor Faubus, there's Fables of Faubus uh, by uh, Mingus uh, as well. And then with Max Roach, who you mentioned, he tried to uh, break the chain of exploitation by creating and distributing his music. But as I suggested, it's more than a notion to be a creative musician who has to practice quite a bit and then attend to a business and then deal with organized crime, uh, which is not interested in seeing these black musicians uh, break into the business and disrupt the chain of exploitation. So, uh, I, and I should mention too, for, for, for your audience who may be interested in pursuing these subjects further, uh, the Library of Congress has the archives and papers of, of many musicians. Uh, Dexter, for example, Mingus, Duke Ellington, and then I mentioned University of Pittsburgh as well which has remarkable collections, including of Earl Garber, who I think uh, is Pittsburgh too. If Pittsburgh, I'm not yes, yes he is. Um, <laughs> many of the vignettes in the book about Earl Garner comes from that collection at the University of Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there's much more work to do uh, in every respect, not only in terms of struggle, but also in creating more histories uh, based upon what these musicians have bequeathed to us in their archives. Right. Speaking of the Haitian fight song, I, I was 
glad to see that you got your article published in uh, the New York Times regarding Haiti and uh, roots of reparation and uh, oh oh wait you didn't get credit for that did you that's correct okay. <laughs> oh, oh okay okay I'm sorry I'm sorry <laughs> just that's a well, little you well you might want to tell you literally wrote a book about the about that article and how Haiti was 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 kind of screwed by the French and their horrible debt and um, and then the New York Times did a very good article about it but uh, I I didn't see your name I'm sorry so well you know the, the idea is to put these works into the bloodstream of the country mm -hmm. and hopefully they'll be picked up yes and yes yes. So that's what happens. So bravo. Yeah, good. No, it, I'm 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 just ribbing you a little bit, but um, mm -hmm. what you're work? What are you working on? You're working on you're going from jazz and the uh, uh, problem with um, musicians. Now you're going to boxing. In the uh, is is that book done? Yeah, that book is out. Yeah. Oh goodness, I haven't. Read. I can't keep up with you. Do you ever sleep? Like a baby. Okay. All right. Hey, <laughs> many Christmas. So was the was the boxing book uh, before this one then? Yes. I'm yes. A book, I'm a book behind. Okay. Yes. All right. <laughs> and that and many of the exact same themes uh, are apparent between. Oh yeah. Uh, can, can I assume that's correct? <laughs> oh yeah. Especially uh, boxing is probably worse with regard to organized crime than than music. Believe it or not. Um. Not least because organized crime oftentimes forces boxers to lose on purpose so that they can place a bet and, and then uh, beat the house. And if the boxer chooses not to go along, then they can be killed, for example. Uh, and it, 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 it's... As I said, the, the whole question of organized crime and the political economy of capitalism. Now, of course, the, some of our more uh, unforgiving critics will say, well, of course, capitalism itself is organized crime. Okay, fine. Well, we can stipulate that. But still, uh, I don't think that that relieves us of the responsibility for digging deeper into the machinations of these so-called organized crime families, as they call themselves. Well, um, boy, thank you for your time today. I can't tell how much I love your book. Uh, I lent it to my neighbor across the street who's a jazz musician and um, he was halfway through it and I ran over the other day and said, give it back to me. I've, I've got to review it for the podcast. <laughs> so it's it's making it's it's, it's making fun. Its way, it's fun. It's making its way around Ruston, Washington. If that's any, if that's if that's before we good. started, I, I I ran through the index. What a pleasure it is to just go through the index and pick out a name that you're familiar with, and then read what uh, what uh, Professor Horn wrote about that that musician. I just enjoyed it for about an hour, just a real treat. So great book. Yeah, right on. Right on. And I took your, I took a, a Spotify and I made by location the musicians that you mentioned in the book, and I'll put it in the, um, put it in the show notes if people want to, as they read the book as I did, go through and listen to the various artists as you're as you're talking about it. That's a, it was quite a treat for me, and I hope it'll be for others too. So, oh great, thank you, thank you, thanks again, good luck. All right, thank.